Welcome to episode two of Agitated Podcast. We have an awesome guest later on, but first we're just going to do our opening up and say what's agitating us this week. So we don't have Shelly with us in this opening part here, but she'll join in later when we do the interview. So yeah, Millie, Jessica, what's agitating you guys? Okay. First, I guess I should say this week had a lot of shitty news. Like it was a really fucking terrible week to be alive in a lot of ways. Um, But there's something that really agitated me in a different way this week. um, And I just feel kind of moved by it and wanted to share. Um, So I checked the mail this morning and I got a check from my high school gym teacher to help with a mutual aid project that I'm working on um, here in Vegas. (laughs) And I just like that. That was kind of the, the tail end of this this big incoming of donations from people, some of whom I kind of know and some of whom I don't know at all, who uh, my friend helped me reach out for this fundraiser I was doing for a local family who's just really been through hell this year, um, truly. And um, they raised like almost $1,000 for this family um, to help them get into housing. and, um, And the thing is like, I believe that it's our duty as white people to redistribute some of our money, right? Like we should be doing that. That's a duty that we have. And yet it's still really overwhelmingly beautiful when people um, redistribute some of their stimulus checks to people who they don't know at all. Um, And so I'm just really appreciating relationships that I have um, where people have just really come through on some mutual aid projects. So I'm feeling, I'm feeling the agitation that is like the responsibility of people, um, trusting me with that position and being a helper so the just the generosity of community um even though sometimes it feels like that's not happening on a wide scale it's definitely happening on a local level and that just like makes me super grateful um I love that it really does show the it's like your your relationships and your network and your community um, responding to your request to help somebody else that they're like, you know, if they're in your community, then I, I, I want to, you know, support it because it's basically like my community, too, which is awesome. I know. And, Isn't that so um, beautiful? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is really cool. I'm glad you shared one that's positive. And you use the word generosity, which I mean is is appropriate in these times but like also this is like baseline for like a healthy community like yeah. this should be the standard of like interpersonal relationships and you know being able to help each other thrive well it's what our government is supposed to be it's like that theory idea of like we the people and you know and that that the government is not some bureaucratic institution separate from us it is the place where we all come together to meet our collective needs and of course that's not how it is (laughs) in theory yeah in theory in theory that's why you would have a society (laughs) i was i was listening to a podcast the other day about reparations and thinking a lot about that lately and what that looks like and and how you know sometimes we can accomplish temporary reparations on a small level in certain circumstances but i just wish that there were bigger structures that allowed us to do that on a systemic level and like be able to actually redistribute wealth in a in a massive way but when we can do that when we like see that there are opportunities locally to redistribute our cash it sometimes is that easy because there are <clears throat> there are people who you know haven't been um, ha- haven't had the the generational sort of support of systems that has allowed them to like have a safety net, you know, and um, a lot of us do. And so, you know, what's like, 
this podcast was interesting because it was getting into the details of reparations like what amount do you give to people like what amount do you feel what amount can you give and not feel and anyway so I've been thinking a lot about that and redistributing money and um, so that's just really in my mind right now and I feel grateful for people who are looking for opportunities to um, help individuals because that goes a long way. And it's also agitating, though, because like you guys know this when we've raised money for individual people for certain circumstances before, is that you can have a bunch of people give in a way that really does impact them financially. And yet the problem is so deep and systemic and repeating that the situation is back again. Right. Like this right. housing have situation. Month, right. Rent next month. And right. Or you bail them out of jail. And they're yeah. right back in because of, you know, the way that it's set up to to put people back in jail or back out of housing. So it's like all these people gave in a way that they felt financially impacted them in a significant way. And then it helped this family. But there's still not a that level of coming together still only is a month's worth of rent. You know what I mean? So it's agitating in these in, in like several ways, you know, that like we need to find bigger more staying ways to do this work and also it's really fucking awesome to see people be able to redistribute some money so well some faith in humanity is always helpful right because at the end yeah. of the day like, <laughs> we need we're we need that and sometimes it's questionable but yeah you i mean i think you've really hit the nail on the head of like that tension that that kind of the show is all about of like if we don't make the structural change then none of our individual actions make any difference and yet at the same time um, you know, starting from individual action is is kind of all we can do. So ah! maybe we could talk sometime in a longer way about reparations, because um, I think that's a really interesting topic. So as I've said before, I live in northern Arizona um, and our state, um, Senator Michelle Udall, just um, added an amendment which would basically prevent educators from teaching critical race theory in schools. Um, essentially meaning that teachers would not be allowed to teach or train anything that would include discussions on things like race, ethnicity, or sex um, that are not quote-unquote relevant to course learning objectives. Um, it would also impose a $10,000 fine for teachers Holy who do shit. use critical what? race Holy theory shit. That in is their classroom, which is like Nazi shit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so this is obviously extremely discriminatory um, and would erase the histories of BIPOC communities as well as, you know, LGBTQ plus folks throughout the history of the United States. Um, you know, and since specific controversial topics are not actually being defined, we have no idea what to expect uh, if this were to become law. You know, on the yeah. extreme end, they could like erase slavery. Um, well, yeah. and Texas has already been trying on that, so I'm sure that's part of the agenda. Right? No, and it sounds so far out there, but this is actually like a part of a trend of this happening across the U.S., and a very, very similar um, law actually just passed in Idaho preventing um, critical race theory in schools. So, I mean, oh I just, I, this is like, wow. gives you goosebumps, right? just yeah. dread in the pit of your stomach. And Millie, what you said about like the vagueness of it is very scary because that's already bad enough to say that, but then like what what is that? That could be anything. That could be that anything. Could be anything that's related to reality that <laughs> um that people in power would not want kids to know about. 
you know, and we already know how biased our curriculums are in terms of examining history. Um, you know, so if we're going to open the doors to just remove anything about, you know, really looking at the experience of marginalized folks in society, then I, you know, it just it tears me apart what kind of hatred and fear are going to grow in students. And there's, you know, those kids are people who have that history of their that is their own history are the people who are in these classrooms, you know? I mean, there's, I think there's partly a sense of like, oh yeah, this is happening in communities that are all white and, um, you know, where they're just not learning about other people's history and maybe it's not that relevant anyways, but it's like, no, this is erasing context for people who are in those classrooms. And the other one is terrible too. Obviously, you know, we need to learn the real history of the United States. I remember I had a teacher in eighth grade who we read a little bit of a people's history of the United States and that was like, you know, revolutionary. And even though it was all real. Yeah, my mother made me read it outside of like whatever our schoolwork was. Well, okay, so I'm going to say this in case anybody doesn't know because I didn't read people's history until I was a full adult. And so I, like, if you don't know, People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn is, like, real history. Essential. <laughs> it's essential. It's, like, if you're trying to understand the history of the United States in the context of, like, the stories that you haven't heard of everything else that was true. It basically is just, like, working class history instead of the history of presidents, uh, which is, you know, and Supreme Court justices, which is the elite of this country it's the history of regular people and lo and behold that is a history of resistance every step of the way because they have been working to keep us down and people have been working against that for you know from day one from the moment that columbus set his disgusting bloody self on the continent <laughs> i did not see that book till i was an adult um but it's really important so you should go check it <laughs> Some out broader context it's also so interesting and so good and it, they have a really good audio version yeah it's only like 22 <laughs> hours so is matt damon reading the whole thing isn't that what that, are you saying right am now? I, maybe I'm not remembering right. I feel... Because remember, Matt Damon is like... Well, he was friends with Howard Zinn because he like grew up next door to him. So they're... So I don't know. I, don't I haven't listened this. to the audio version. <laughs> I might be full of shit. <laughs> okay, we will, we will come back and let you know if Matt Damon narrates people's history of the United States. <laughs> okay, my agitated thing is also... Um, <clears throat> bad but it's kind of just huge it's so it's just plastic i have just been thinking about plastic all week in a way that is just just agitating because it's so everywhere and i i thought about bringing like stats of like how much plastic is in the ocean and rivers like every minute but i'm not even gonna do that it you know we know it's like unfathomable and the thing I've just been thinking about every time I, you know, open up a package of whatever, and I try, you know, not to have a lot of plastic in my life. I, I make efforts, but it's impossible. You know, it's impossible not to have it everywhere. And just thinking about how it's going to be here for an amount of time that our little feeble brains can't even wrap our heads around and like any animals that survive the um, climate collapse apocalypse that human beings have created will need to like adapt to have plastic in their environment. Like who, you know, like who knows what kind of like freaky animals there will be that have like plastic 
in them and, you know, like for their home. Uh, just just thinking about how like when we're long gone, uh, our plastic will be here forever. And on the other hand, too, you know, plastic is like healthcare, And like when when you have to, you know, do some crazy life saving thing, like the amount of plastic that goes into taking care of us that is necessary in order to survive as we understand how people should survive, I guess, is, you know, it's not like it's all evil, I guess I'm trying to say, or, but at the end of the day, it is all evil. It's just such a, it's such an abomination that we have created this substance that we have no sense of what the implications are. And we're still just pumping it out, pumping it out. Meanwhile, we're like banning plastic straws as if that's the fucking, you know, I mean, yeah, we should use less plastic straws and bags and blah and blah and blah, blah. But you know, and the farce of recycling, that is the really, <laughs> right. really scary part. And we talked about this a little bit before, but um, the idea that when, when we've been given this, by the industry, right? right These right. cute little tubs to separate and send it in and, you know, feel really good about yourself when really most of that ends up in the landfill. Yeah. Um, yeah. And was never intended to be to be recycled. <laughs> There's like no system. It's not like there was like a breakdown somewhere and like, oh, we just got lazy. It's like the whole idea of recycling is um is a myth. Make believe. Make believe, we believe for yeah. us to mm-hmm. satisfy ourselves as we open another plastic container. Well, and to make it so that we don't turn on the industry and say, wait a minute, you know, you have to do something about this. So the solution for what to do is put it on us. Recycle your, now they don't even have the sorting of the bins. If you're lucky enough to live in a place where you sort it, then it is actually more likely to get recycled. But the shit, when they just throw it all in one thing and we imagine that they pick through it and they fucking don't at all. I also found out this week that black plastic is 100% not recyclable. It doesn't, there's no place where it could be recycled. There's, it, it, it all ends up in the landfill and it corrupts the whole thing. So any amount, um, the, to the extent that any recycling is actually happening, when there's black plastic in there, it um, it fucks up the process. So, I do want to add, nice. and it's like obviously a solution that is far from being, you know, viable to save us all right now. But um, they have found that there's kinds of fungus and mushrooms that can actually break down plastics and oils. They're doing it. I used to live in Fort Bragg, California, and there was a really polluted old mill site there. Um, and they have they just dumped everything in the ground. It's like the saddest thing. But they have been um, doing research over the years um, to clean that up using it, um, you know, with success, <laughs> you know, within a lifetime, yeah, yeah. which is even, you know, more exciting. That is awesome. And yeah. thank you for bringing it back to the mushrooms that maybe, if anything, will save us. It will be mushrooms. Will <laughs> if, save any, us. if anything will save us, it'll be mushrooms. That makes sense. <laughs> Not that we deserve it. <laughs> well, some but, of us don't, but yeah. some of us do, right? Like, like yeah. this, mm-hmm. these, it's not like human beings like it's really easy to be like human beings are trash and we don't deserve to live on this planet but it's like not all human beings created this problem right it's mostly like white colonizing countries and capitalism that created this so it's right yeah no that's a good point you know it's like it's disproportionate how we impact the planet but i've been thinking about plastic too a lot and really trying to figure out how how to reduce it and what you're saying is true it's just fucking impossible but like the the emotional and like maybe spiritual impact of what it's like to have a container that you're going to use for like 15 minutes maybe and then 
discard it and it lasts like many of your lifetimes like what's the impact of like having that relationship to things in general you know what I mean like that's damaging I think I there's a that is there's a weight there and that's kind of what I that's why I'm thinking I've been thinking about it you know I've been trying to um I've just been trying to take that in a little bit. Not that it's not crazy making also, right? Because it's like, what do you do with that? You know, you can choose not to buy the whatever thing, the hummus in the tub, uh, but somebody else will and that tub still exists and, you know, all that logic. But still, at the same time, I just numbing ourselves and trying to avoid that weight also doesn't feel like the right thing, you know? I mean, it's definitely a balance. You can't walk around with that all the time and expect to be, like, a functional person. But, um, you know, and I think that people who do spend a good amount of time (laughs) are dragged down by that weight. I think that's part of the psychological toll of our society. But anyway, I just, you know, I I weighed back and forth whether whether to raise it because you know the organizer in me is like you shouldn't say stuff that you don't have without a solution solution. (laughs) right it's like yeah but therefore we avoid talking about all the big things that matter the most because i don't fucking know but we still need to figure it out yeah totally and we'll mention this again at the end but we are going we we figured out how to make a way on our site so that you can tell us what's agitating you um, and we would love to hear what um, what is agitating you. And, and maybe we'll have uh, some thoughts to add in about it. And, and, and maybe we'll just take it on as something else that should agitate us as well. But we're really excited about the fact that there can be a little bit of an exchange here. Hi, Shelly here with the Twitter Roundup. Uh, This will be an ongoing segment on Agitated, and our vision was that it would be done in an entertaining way, kind of laying out the main characters and discourse, because despite Twitter being part of big tech and privately owned, it is still the most populist mainstream social media platform where news and discourse tends to hit first and where truth can be spoken to power, whether it's celebrities, politicians, CEOs, pundits, journalists, and how that makes for an interesting democratic dynamic that we will attempt to highlight and condense for you in this segment. But this week, it just didn't feel right to use that entertaining tone, given what's happening in Gaza and East Jerusalem and how much space that is rightfully taking up on Twitter this week. But a rundown is still in order, so we're still going to do it. You probably saw New York City mayoral candidate Andrew Yang's whole chest, I stand with Israel tweet and the deserved backlash. But let's be real, his position is the mainstream Democratic Party position. AOC took a jab at him over it on Tuesday, and good for her, but she also got some pushback from the left for not going after those actually in power who hold this same view, namely President Joe Biden and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. That pressure must have worked because on Wednesday she did call out the president for his statement that, quote, Israel has the right to defend itself, calling it wrong. But will she ever call out Mama Bear? We won't hold our breath. 
and the censorship. Wow. On Tuesday, Twitter inexplicably suspended the account of Al Jazeera reporter Mariam Barghouti, a Palestinian journalist who is on the ground in the West Bank reporting on protests against the expulsion of Palestinians from their homes in Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem, aka ethnic cleansing, and the original aggression that led to what's currently going on. Unlike a typical Twitter suspension, her bio and all of her recent tweets were replaced with a message that she had violated the terms of service. When Vice reached out to them for comment, Twitter said it was an oopsie, and they reversed it, but gave no other explanation. And finally, film star and former Israeli Defense Force soldier Gal Gadot turned off replies for her tweet on Wednesday, which called it a, quote, vicious cycle and just oozing of both sides' BS a move which backfired as her tweet still received the ratio treatment, but through retweets, making it even more visible in users' timelines and making her a trending topic. The people spoke, and it was good. And that's the Twitter roundup for now. Thanks for listening. And from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. All right, guys. Well, how about we do our interview now? Uh, That feels like a good time to transition. So, Caitlin, thank you for starting off with Eleanor's bio. Eleanor Goldfield is a queer creative radical, organizer, journalist, musician, songwriter, podcaster, poet, and filmmaker. Her film, Hard Road of Hope, is about West Virginia, once the home to the rise and reign of King Cole that is now in the crosshairs of a transition of power from coal to gas. Eleanor explores the history of the third poorest state in our nation and the violent ecological transitions that West Virginia communities are going through and finds the grassroots organizing happening as the working class are coming together across cultural, race, and religious dividing lines to organize together for basic human rights. We're extremely honored to have her here as our first guest on Agitated Podcast. As we were planning the podcast, we knew we wanted you to be our first guest as a podcaster and organizer that we really admire. So thank you so much for being here. So to just start off, um, what's agitating you these days? And since this is still early on in the process, just so everyone is clear by what what we mean by agitation is it is in like what's shaking you up or riling you up, not what's irritating you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like that question, and it's interesting. We were I, I had a mutual aid meeting earlier this week, and that was one of the things that we talked about. Like like we should focus on what's agitating us. Um, so I think like, I, I'd say that that's probably one of the, one of the main things that's, uh, that's agitating me is, um, is like the mutual aid work that's happening in, uh, not just like in hyper local spaces, but the networks that are being built across borders, both, uh, both actual borders, like land borders, and then like fake ones, like, you know, lines that some old dead white dude made. Um, and like that that is super that is super rad and i'm really stoked to to see how that continues to grow and expand because like in the past mutual aid has been kind of localized to a disaster zone and then when you go outside of it it's like oh there's nothing going on here it's just like normal but now that this has uh you know this disaster has hit the entire world not evenly of course but it has hit the entire world and so there are uh, there are mutual aid networks 
everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so yeah, that's definitely one thing. Um, and then like, I'd say that, uh, I'd say that music is agitating me both in, in both, ten, in the both terms of that word though, <laughs> music and I have like a very, a very like push pull relationship <laughs> we always have. Um, so yeah, I th- I'd say like probably those are the those are the two main things that are agitating me at the moment. Nice. Can you talk a little bit just about what mutual aid is, just in case there's anyone who's listening who doesn't know yet? Sure. So mutual aid is uh, at at its core, it's solidarity, not charity. And what it means by that is that charity is a hierarchical structure that demands that there are people that require the the help of somebody who's above them. Um, in a class structure, in a white supremacist structure, a gender structure, what have you. Um, It requires that hierarchical relationship, whereas mutual aid is flat in the sense that it's the community helping itself. Um, So in that terms, like mutualism, for instance, it's, you know, like tomorrow we're going to have a language skill share where I'm going to try to learn Spanish better and some of like the street vendors that we work with are going to uh, learn English better. Um, And there's that sense of mutualism. And so it's a community working within itself, with each other to better conditions for everyone. Um, And really to knock out the charity model with uh, this idea of whether that be white saviorism or, uh, you know, let me help you, you poor pitiful being you, (laughs) like none of that crap. And so mutual aid is in that sense, not just a way to buck the system, but it is a way to build an alternative at the same time, uh, because parts of mutual aid are, you know, addressing things like the lack of childcare, uh, the lack of food sovereignty, um, you know, alternatives to calling police. So it's really like uh, as a as a as a concept, it is a way to build a future that really works for all of us. Love that. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. How, what's your story? Like, how did you get involved in doing that kind of work? What sort of were the radicalizing moments for you that led you to be doing the sort of work you're doing? So interestingly enough, like why I have a pod, one of my podcasts um, is called Silver Threads and we have a similar question. <laughs> um, and I've never been asked that question. <laughs> so, um, so I think like, I mean, one of the big moments for me was, uh, you know, I started in, you know, what I would, would call activism. I don't call myself an activist anymore, but um, what I would call activism when I was like 13 and I started doing like environmental work and it really stemmed from paying attention. Like I was running with the dog and I just saw a bunch of trash in a ditch and I was like, oh, you know what? Ugh. And so I picked it up and then it became like, oh, Eleanor is the, the weirdo who runs around the neighborhood and picks up trash. Um, and then, uh, and then I started like a recycling program at my school because they didn't have one because it was North Carolina. Um, and so like, just like little, like, you know, steps like that. And then before the second Iraq war, I started doing anti-war work and organizing around that. Um, and I saw them as like two disparate issues and it was, it wasn't until like my earlier mid twenties where I realized, oh my God, all this shit's connected, like under this horrific uh, umbrella of like capitalism and imperialism. And um, so that's when things started to shift and I started to uh, to really get involved with more like grassroots efforts and 
um, grassroots efforts that focused on the connections between issues and didn't treat things like little siloed little you know spaces, which is totally unhelpful. Um, and in terms of mutual aid, I I started doing journalism when I was working as a tech in recording studios, and then like around Occupy, I started doing journalism for um, for like movement kind of stuff and political journalism, and and then it, like it became a very important like part of my work to if I could like go to the places and talk to the people that I was writing about. So I wouldn't just replicate corporate media's, well, I heard this story, it must be true because some dude at the CIA said so. Um, and so it became like, how can I go and access these stories? And one of the ways to do that is really to connect with mutual aid or community organizations in these places. Um, so whether that be, you know, Puerto Rico after the hurricane or whether that be, you know, uh, pipeline fights in Pennsylvania or Louisiana or what have you. It was like, how can I like go to these places and work not just as an organizer and help out, but in that same space, do the journalist uh, journalism work that actually like elevates the the stories of the people that I'm that I'm hanging out with and um, in community with. So, yeah, I'd say that that's. I mean, it was there are so many like little watershed moments along the way, and so many incredible people who like took time to actually, you know, hold my hand and kind of guide me and explain that I was wrong or, um, you know, like call me in if, you know, that's something that a phrase that people still use. Um, and so I think that those folks definitely deserve a lot of credit for uh, not just, you know, uh, giving me those watershed moments in the past, but continuing um, in my growth as, as I continue this journey. Speaking of collecting stories, uh, we want to know more about what prompted you and your process behind this film. Now, if you haven't already seen it, Hard Road of Hope, we all watched it this week um, and incredibly blown away by hearing from, you know, folks there, um, their experience. And so eloquently, you know, explaining these, these systematic dynamics occurring around them. Please tell us more. My process, I don't really know because I didn't go thinking that I was going to make a documentary. I had no intention of being a documentary filmmaker. That wasn't anything that was like, and I actually think in the end that helped um, because I think sometimes when people have like a specific project in mind, then the project becomes the goal as opposed to actually sitting down with these folks and because I was there like in capacity as an organizer and also like as a journalist, I would just sit with people. I mean, I stayed at, at people who were in the film. I stayed at their homes. You know, we drank wine and smoked together and hung out. And uh, I didn't just like come in, get a story and leave. Um, which is again, like, I don't really like that extractive process. And having been on the other side of it, both as, you know, a musician and, and an, as an organizer, like I hate when people are like, let me just get your story and then I'm off and I don't really care whatever happens to you. <laughs> um, so I came in with it, I came into it thinking that I was going to could do what I usually do, which is uh, hang out and, you know, gather the stories from folks that wanted to share them um, and then share them through written and video uh, uh, mediums. And then as, you know, the time passed there, I was like, you know, I feel like there's a lot of like there's a lot of angles here and there's a lot of stories. Like I have hundreds of hours of footage. How can I make this 
a 30 minute segment. And this wasn't necessarily unusual. I mean, like the places I've been are no less dynamic and no less powerful. But I think it's also because uh, when I was in West Virginia, there was a real like cross section of, 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 of issues that perhaps wasn't as like as prominent in other places. So there's fracking, there's coal, there's, you know, the issues of propagandization, there's the, uh, you know, the, the, the radicalism of telling your story, there's the past, there's the hope for the future, there's, the, I mean, it was just like so much stuff happening at the same time. And I was like, I want to do justice by this. Um, and I want to do right by the people I'm talking to. So I was like, well, I think they called a longer format video. I think that's called a film. <laughs> um, so I guess I'll do one of those. And so I kind of just like fell bass backwards into it. And, uh, you know, again, like I'm lucky to, to be in touch with people who are experienced at these things. And so I was able to reach out and get some guidance and, um, and yeah, and, uh, that's, that's kind of how that happened. And, uh, and then it was, you know, birthed into the world. Well, it was really amazing. You found like some of the most incredible people to talk to. Um, and another thing that struck me about it that sets it apart from a lot of documentaries is uh, like the poetry and prose of it, like your energy as a poet, like really came through. And I really appreciated that as well. Um, in terms of like, you know, you really laid out uh, a lot of the the different dynamics and intersections and the history and um, the storytelling was incredible. But what do you see as the path forward? You talked about, um, you know, the indigenous people who, you know, uh, have lived there for a very long time and have been impacted by this and also the former coal and now fracking um, industry communities. What do you see as like the path forward for them to finally, um, you know, come out from under this horrible corporate rule? I think uh, basically what's what's happening there in little pockets, you know, um, I think I, I can't remember who said it, but it's a uh, it's a First Nation um, organizer in so-called Canada who said, like, y'all, as in white people, don't need to use our teachings. Like somewhere back there, like way back there, before all the colonialist imperialist crap, y'all had these deep connections to land. You had these deep connections to your home place. Dig and find those. And like, while you're at it, why don't you like deal with some of the trauma that you have in your DNA from being the oppressor? Because we don't talk about that that often. But that is like a trauma that's carried down from generation to generation of like being a colonialist and an imperialist and like it's not natural. So I really liked that because it turns this white supremacy conversation around like, oh, isn't it nice that BIPOC have so much work to do? and <laughs> We'll just sit back here and like support that work. And it's like, no, we've got a lot of work to do unpacking all that crap and also finding those connections to place. And I think what's happening in, in certain places like West Virginia, and I think there, the, the fact that it's rural really does help, is that people are finding these connections to land. And yes, they're using some guidance from, uh, from indigenous and First Nations teachings, but that's as a guide. They're not like appropriating it. Um, so for instance, one of the folks in the film, Paul Corbett Brown, has organized uh, with, uh, with folks in the past in the like in the Midwest, uh, Lakota and um, Dakota peoples, 
around you know the, these these ideas, and he's used that as an inspiration to connect to his home place, which is now West Virginia. Um, and so I think that kind of work that's happening is really really powerful. Um, and also then like you know in the film he says like one house at a time, one community at a time, and using it like that. And again like so much of organizing is just sitting on somebody's porch and being like, hey, you don't trust the government, neither do I, let's talk about it. Like, and just having these like connections that where you don't even get into isms, like isms are so divisive and most people don't know what they mean anyway. So it's like, why even bother getting into them? Just sit and talk about what, what you want, what you need and how it's not being delivered. And then most of the time you get to some common ground and in that common ground, there's really like some fertile, space to grow new worlds. And I think that kind of work is what's happening in these little pockets in West Virginia. And I think it's also a really important uh, you know, note to, to, to give to particularly white organizers that like these are our communities, our poor white communities that are either going to get you know, taken over by white supremacists or they're going to be taken in by us. And I think the fact that you know poor white communities are often forgotten in the conversation of leftist organizing is a huge problem um, and we really need to do a better job of going into these places and not doing the typical hi let me tell you about climate change because you must obviously not understand but shutting up and listening and hanging out and building with them as a and again like that's the mutual aid idea is like building with someone not telling them how they need to build and all that crap. So I think in that sense, I think that is the path forward, not just in West Virginia, but I'd say pretty much anywhere. Yeah, one of the things that really struck me and really hit me in the film, I don't remember who it was, but talking about um, just how when we're alienated from the land, like how can we possibly take care of it? And it just seemed like alienation is sort of like, that's that's kind of like the thread running through all the pieces in your film. And then the solution to that is, is the solidarity and the mutual aid, like that's the antithesis. And until we understand that alienation is, is the thing that's fucking us all up in every which way, you know, but also the, what is, what is the solution is like the thing that is so inherent to human beings. And so that almost makes it like, there's so much potential there. I think it was that part of the film where I started to cry. Like <laughs> that the solidarity shit just gets me in the gut. <laughs> well, it's so nice that it's like, on one hand, you know, we have this huge, we have huge, huge problems that, you know, so many layers, so many facets. And then, but then when you cut to it, you know, what, what will actually solve it is something that we're all so capable of doing actually. <laughs> and I, and your film did such a good job of bringing that across. I really, I hope everybody checks it out. Yeah. Um, let's make sure that we tell people how they can find it because anybody can access it and watch it tonight. Hey, I'm wondering if we could just go back one second um, to something you said earlier, um, which is that you don't identify necessarily as an activist anymore. I wonder if you could talk about that and like, in your mind, the difference between activism and organizing and like how you came to that? Sure. So um, I, the thing with activism, so I, I now uh, identify as a radical and um, as a word nerd, I'll just go ahead and say that radical like means roots. And 
So it's really like a coming to the root causes, but also the root solutions, like that sort of solidarity idea and the connection to place, people, etc. Activism has become like a word to me, like woke, you know, like Hillary Clinton can call herself woke, um, you know, and it's not that it's true, um, but it's just that it's like, I feel like capital A activism has become kind of an industry, you know, um, and the idea of this sort of activism that like is going to a protest, it is, you know, talking to cops and asking them if you can walk on this side of the street or, you know, <laughs> like, and I, and I, and I, I don't call them marches. I call them parades because marches are not permitted. Um, so these parades where people, and here's the thing, I am totally pro like parades and, you know, photo ops in front of the white house. Not that you can get that close to it anymore, but you know, I think that these moments are important for people who are new and see these actions and they're like, whoa, I didn't even realize this was an issue or this is something that affects me. And so it's a big visual representation of something that can bring people into the movement. But let's be honest, this is not the work that needs to be done, like photo ops of a polar bear in front of the White House. Like, love it, great, wonderful, but this isn't going to like significantly change things. And so I think that that is to me like that is activism and that is like it's like a gateway drug which is great it's necessary but i think that the the, the work that i'm focused on now um is like behind the scenes you know it's like the stuff that doesn't get shown on vice or whatever you know it's like uh it's it's the mm -hmm. it's the you know talking or like it's like the the, the organizing with street vendors or making sure that uh, you know a single mom doesn't have to stay in a shelter overnight because shelters are terrifying. Um, so that kind of work that's not sexy, but it's necessary and it's incredibly like beautiful and important work of community building. And so I would call that like organizing. And I, you know, I call myself a, a radical and an organizer. If somebody else does the same work and they're like, but I really relate to activists, like mazel tov, that's great. I'm not trying to say that you're wrong. This is just like how I perceive it based on my uh, my life experiences and like my journey. And I just felt that activist doesn't feel right because it feels kind of like an industry. And I'm I, I'm like, I'm trying to remove myself from the industrial complex of all of it, like fill in the blank. <laughs> all the things. I also thought it was yeah. really critical that you differentiated between solidarity and charity um, because we have sort of glorified this idea of philanthropy um, as something that, you know, oh, the rich are helping the poor, but really it's, you know, reinforcing a power dynamic that is really, really harmful. Um, so, as an artist, I'm going to pivot a little bit here. Um, as an artist um, and uh, radical, how do you feel that art fits in with mutual aid and really revolution in general? Um, so I'm going to quote Bertolt Brecht, who said, art is not a mirror to hold up to the world, but a hammer with which to shape it. Um, and also James Baldwin, who said that poets, and by that I mean all artists, are the only ones who know what it is to be human on this planet and survive. And so I think like I say, like art is not going to topple empires, but it will inspire and hold the people who do. 
Art is a salve when you need it. Um, it is an inspiration that gets you riled up and agitated. And art is a way of communicating. It's a way that we can tell our stories um, in mediums and in, in voices that are otherwise silenced. Um, in you know the official and condoned channels. Art is just creative thinking, right? It's a way to look at the world that isn't constructed in the confines of this capitalist paradigm. So I like to say that like the usual way is like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, but the creative thinking is like, dude, we could make rafts out of the deck chairs. <laughs> um, which by the way, the fact that they didn't do that, Major myth. <laughs> they were obviously lacking in artists on the Titanic. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so I think like art is absolutely necessary, not just for like the, you know, for the salve and, and as a way to, for humans to express what it is to be human, right? Um, and a way for people to connect. Uh, but also a way to think critically. You know, it's no it's no wonder that the first things to get cut from schools are art programs, because you poor little child, you should not know how to think outside the box. You should learn how to be a good little prole and a good little worker, and no one needs to know how to play the tuba. Um, but of course, like playing an instrument or whatever, like that, this is just a way of like training your brain to think differently. So I think like art is vital in all times, but in particular times like these where things feel really heavy and that's that goes beyond just like the the the, the typical or um, uh, you know the typical mediums that we talk about like visual art or whatever it, it it goes beyond that into like the creative thinking space. Shout out to tuba players. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> So there's another A word um, that I we believe you still uh, do identify as, which is anarchist. Um, is that true? Uh, I mean, I don't, which makes my anarchist friends say that I am one. <laughs> and I do believe in a stateless society. I think that while I adore socialists and uh, and communists, and I would will organize them with them till the end. I myself don't believe that a state structure is how we liberate ourselves and each other. Um, I believe that autonomous and flatter structures, not necessarily entirely flat, um, because let's be honest, there's some sort of utopia where everything's perfect and everyone has a sprout sandwich and I don't believe that that's possible. Um, but, uh, but I believe in that idea of self-determination and autonomy and I don't believe that anybody has the right to lord over anyone else in that sort of extreme hierarchical situation that is the demand of a state. Um, and so in that sense, yes, I do define myself in that space, whatever you wanna call it, you can call it Steve, I don't care. But like, I, you know, the reason that I don't put like a, an A on my chest um, is because I think that particularly like in this, in this day and age, Hearing the word anarchy is terrifying to so many people because they don't understand it, right? They think that it means absence of order. In reality, it's an absence of hierarchy. Capitalism is chaos. That is the absence of order. <laughs> but it's it's because like things have been so twisted. And especially if you look back at like, you know, May, May Day, May 1st and the Haymarket affair. Um, this idea, like the anarchists were the ones who organized this with communists, with socialists. 
And so the idea that these are, you know, if you're an anarchist, you just want to burn everything to the ground. That is some beautiful propagandization on behalf of the state that made people believe that. Um, and I will gladly have this conversation with people, but I'm not going to walk into a space and be like, I'm an anarchist because I feel like even socialists or communists or whatever will look at me and be like, mm. um, so I just rather not say it and be like, I'm a mutualist or I just like, you know, I just like liberation. I think we should all have it <laughs> or whatever, you know? So I think like in that sense, I, I wouldn't call myself an anarchist, but I believe in a lot of the tenets of anarchism and, you know, some of my favorite writers and dearest friends are like loud and proud anarchists. Um, so if I, you know, gunned my head had to choose, I, I would choose that. But at this point I just say, you know, I'm, I'm for justice and liberation and whatever, whatever we want to call that, um, is is fine. And I guess like one one final note on that, and I think anarchists will fall into this trap as well. Every ideology comes prepackaged with um, self-defense mechanisms that don't allow people to accept new truths that go against their chosen ideology. So I think for to create the best space for us to grow and admit that we're wrong and all that stuff is to not cling to an ideology, but instead, just take things as they come and accept that like what worked five years ago or what we thought worked might not work now. And, you know, the ideologies are not fluid, like, like the space and time and people that we're working with. So I'd, I'd say that that's, you know, a little, a little, uh, you know, word of caution to, to people who are very, very tight to their ideologies. So glad you said that. That's so important. Given everything we've talked about in a world of a lot of, misinformation and disinformation and chaos what is something that you feel like you know is true so i thought about this and i was like does this just sound like a total dodge but i don't think it does because like like i call myself an agnostic atheist because i don't know i how could i possibly know i haven't died yet knock on wood um but i i i feel comfortable in being an agnostic atheist and in terms of like what's true i recently talked to some folks about journalism and they were like well how do you how do you approach it being objective and i'm like there's no such thing um this this like this suggestion that oh like one of the one of the tropes is like oh well your job as a journalist is to you know to tell people if it's raining outside it's raining and i'm like well first of all no that's a weather person but second of all <laughs> my job as a journalist is not to tell you it's raining it's to tell you why it's raining is it because of climate change? Who's being affected by the rain? And where, meanwhile, CNN is going to be talking this rich asshole about like how they feel about rain. And so there is no objective way to approach something like that. It's all about the angle that you choose. Where are you pointing the camera? What's not in the shot, you know? So in terms of what I know to be true, I'll say that I know that there are multiple truths. And that doesn't mean that things can just be made up whole cloth and like fake news is definitely a thing. And I don't know what alternative facts are, but they're just lies. But like, there are definitely true things, but they can be true next to other things. And I think that this also speaks to like the need for nuance when we talk about things like uh, this, this sort of hard line mentality presupposes that we know everything already. Um, and I think that's very dangerous because it creates a wall to new truths, to new facts that 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 that, that uh, you know that are being thrown our way. 
Um, so I think like in terms of what I know to be true, I know that like broad strokes that what we're living in right now is not good. I also know that it's surmountable, just like Ursula K. Le Guin said, you know, we think of capitalism as insurmountable, but so we felt the same way about the divine right of kings. So I think that like what I know to be true is that this is fucked, but we can get through it. And that the only thing that will get us through it are ourselves and the people power that we are being kept from because of the extreme propagandization, because of the, you know, the systemic oppression. Um, and so I guess I'll, I'll, I'll say that broad strokes. Nice. Fuck yes. That's not a dodge. That's exactly right. That's great. <laughs> Very wise. Well, and it's also a good segue to, you know, where where do you go for news media? Because I think one of the things that we want to do through this podcast is potentially expose people who maybe aren't sure where to look for real information, true information, or again, that angle that is different than CNN or MSNBC's angle, which is, you know, really the angle of the elites, even if it's couched a little bit softer than that. So where do you go for, for real information? Well, I'll say that, um, and this I'm biased because I write for them, but um, Mint Press News is rad. Uh, Popular Resistance is also really good and kind of brings a lot of uh, articles from uh, disparate places. The Gray Zone. Uh, actually, right now, uh, I'm working um, with a few people. I'm working on a media site that will be kind of like a hub for a bunch of different trusted journalists and trusted outlets so that oh, people awesome. can have like one place that they go to. Mm -hmm. um, so we're currently working on that. And that will also serve to battle the censorship, which is pretty intense right now. Um, but of course, I have to also shout out uh, Redacted Tonight, because um, if I don't, I won't get laid. Um, <laughs> no, but I mean, it is a, it is a uh, fantastic show. And um, I like... I guess I should also do some shameless self-promotion and say that uh, the podcast that I do with Lee Camp, Common Censored, is a is another good um, place for news. Uh, Breakthrough News with Eugene Purrier is like so amazing. And we'll put links to all of those places on the show description as well, so you can find them. Tell us everywhere we can find you. So artkillingapathy.com is my website. Um, the newest project that will be out, uh, also by the time this is live, um, is my EP called No Solo, which is my first solo project <laughs> that people might think that that's an ironic name, but there's more information about that on my website. If you'd like to know my nerdy explanation for that. Um, and of course the film is 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 still out hardroadofhope.com if anybody has like an educational space or an organizational space that they would like a screening done uh, feel free to reach out to me cuz that's kind of like what I've been doing um, i think it i think it can be used really well as an organizing tool um, and an educational tool um, and of course the the podcast that i do and like some spoken word and poetry stuff is also up on the site so basically like you know, grab a beer, go to artkillingapathy.com, hang out and, you know, peruse. I think one thing also that might be helpful for people to know is that the Hard Road of Hope documentary film is about an hour long. So if you like wanted to show it in a class or something like that, it um, it's a really digestible size. Thanks, y'all. I really appreciated the questions. They were good. 
Thanks. Bye, Eleanor. Are you gonna be an Thank you so much for listening to episode two. You can sign up for our email list so you get notifications whenever a new episode drops. And you can sign up to get notified at agitatedpodcast.com. And we want to hear what's agitating you. So let us know at agitatedpodcast.com. Click the menu item that's titled What's Agitating You? And then you can write it in or you can record a message that we may play on a future episode. And you can also leave us feedback under the Contact Us section of the website. We have stickers! If you would like one, (laughs) drop us a line with your address through any of our social media channels or the website. And speaking of social media, we'd love to connect with you there. You can find us at Agitated Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate us five stars on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you tune into your podcasts. And if you would leave a positive review, it helps the algorithm to bump up our podcast so we can find new people with our show. And please share us with your friends. Podcasts like ours grow through word of mouth. Thanks so much for your support. We really appreciate everybody who's tuned in so far. And big thanks to Jason and Radical Guide for helping us produce this show. And we'll see you next time. Bye. We'll make you cry.